Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Inflation continues to weigh on Canadians, and it is not a new phenomenon. Throughout history, decision makers and markets have rallied and tamed the monetary beast before. But each time, the fight to restore price stability and confidence has been different, requiring a policy response that is suited for the unique circumstances of the time. So, what are the characteristics of the global and domestic economic woes we face today, and what fiscal, monetary, and free market weapons should come to bear? To offer his perspectives on the questions of our times, today we welcome Canada's 22nd Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Stephen Harper. Prime Minister Harper co-founded the modern Conservative Party of Canada and won three successive national elections in 2006, 2008, and 2011, and led our economy through the financial crisis. He was most recently inducted into the Order of Canada, is an author and chairman of Harper Associates Consulting and International Democrat Union. Today, with host Pamela Ritchie, we'll hear Prime Minister Harper's thoughts on inflation and liquidity. Additionally, the energy transition, cryptocurrencies, and the current investment environment. He notes we are in a period of macroeconomic and geopolitical turmoil. Prime Minister Harper also looks at geopolitics, including the Russia-Ukraine conflict. He'll also outline opportunities he sees for Canada. Stay tuned for all of this and more. Today's podcast was recorded on November 1st, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Prime Minister, great to see you, Stephen Harper. Yes, thanks for having me, Pamela, and thanks to Fidelity for bringing us together. Yeah, very glad you could join us here today. Let's begin with inflation, if you don't mind. How is it going at this point? We know sort of the backdrop where some of it, where it's coming from. Is it going to come down with alacrity at some point or are we kind of stuck with it? Look, if you don't mind me, Pam, let me just take a moment on what the backdrop is and where it came from, because this has been, I think, misdiagnosed and misread almost from the beginning. Um, you know, there were suggestions early on that inflation was caused by uh, supply chain disruptions, by, uh, you know, rising price of some imports. Um, you know, those sorts of things can aggravate inflation, but when you have sustained uh, and serious general rises in the price level, that is, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to talk like Friedman here, that is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And what happened during the pandemic was, I, I think, if you look back at it, I, I think that really what happened was that policymakers were like generals fighting the last war. They all looked at the global financial crisis and decided that this was like that and they would respond the same way. In the global financial crisis, we had around the world significant fiscal and monetary stimulus, not, not so much in Canada on the monetary side, but we'd certainly had significant fiscal stimulus. And this time the world responded with an order of magnitude, order of magnitude, larger fiscal and monetary stimulus. But what 
I think was fundamentally misunderstood from day one is that this wasn't actually stimulus. In the right. global financial crisis, we had a, a, a big hit on the demand side of the economy and, and we had to create confidence and stimulate growth. This time, we had government mandated lockdowns and restrictions on economic activity. We weren't trying to stimulate the economy. We were just trying to provide people with liquidity while their economic activity was restricted. So we were pouring fiscal and monetary stimulus into a supply constrained environment. This is why I said in early 2020, this was going to lead to inflation. It was just obvious. But as they say, unfortunately, uh, policymakers were looking at it through the wrong lens. And so, you know, now we've ended up with um, with uh, high and rising inflation. So, look, my my view on where it goes from here um, is maybe a little different than others. I, I actually think that the actions being taken by central banks will lower inflation quicker than people think. I don't think it's going to go as high as some people think, and I don't I think it will come down quicker. But I do think that even if it comes down and even at relatively modest levels of inflation, inflation is likely to outpace wage growth, meaning that inflation will be adequate to, to erode people's standards of living. And that's going to be a serious problem for the, for the next few years. And needs to be invested um, for that eventuality if, if that is in case the way it goes. And, and everyone's sort of listening closely, obviously, on that front. I mean, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about liquidity coming out of the system right now. I mean, so central banks are doing what they're doing. We're seeing rates rise in the United Kingdom and obviously in the U.S. QT is happening. They're pulling it out of the system. Right. What I mean, it's a bit of an experiment. Your comments on that, please. So you're you're right. There's there's two ways in which the monetary uh, uh, stock is being shrunk. One is through rising interest rates. And the other is through an actual uh, reversal of some of the QT measures. Uh, look, I, I think this is essential. Um, it's, it's obviously going to cause um, additional difficulties in the economy. But um, the only way to get out of this is to bring the money supply back to more appropriate levels. So that just has to be done. Look, I, I think, Pamela, here's what, what people are not going to want to hear. Um, you know, we just... We just did the policies of the 1970s. Frankly, I think governments around the world were going in that direction before the pandemic. Then in the pandemic, they went into overdrive. We've done the policies of the 1970s, and we've got the results of the 1970s. The results of the 1970s were high levels of debt, which constrained growth, and high levels of of money, which uh, fueled inflation. And um, there's no, you know, there's no easy way out of that. It's going to take time and there's going to have to be deleveraging of both debt and money supply. You will hear that um, inflation in certain ways and with more moderate probably levels will help governments inflate their way a little bit out of debt. Any Anything to say on that front? Yeah, I'd say I'd um, put some real caution on that. Um, you know, my my particular area of, of, of economic expertise is actually in the history of fiscal policy. And what um, you often see at the beginning of inflationary periods is governments temporarily see their budget balances improve dramatically because in, in the first instance, 
government revenues, which are all linked to nominal GDP, go up quite rapidly, and expenditures appear not to go up very rapidly. But in very short order, within a year or two, you see the pressure on the expenditure side. Because some expenditures are indexed, because government is a purchaser and faces higher prices out in the marketplace, and also, of course, because political pressure forces governments to start to index benefits and other programs. So governments right now, and I'm seeing this all over the world, governments right now are saying, wow, look, our, our budget balance looks so much better. We have a lot of room now. That is, that is a mirage. That room will vanish in short order. And if governments use that room to do more expansionary fiscal policy, they're going to find themselves in even deeper problems in the next couple of years. Well, I mean, on, on that front, uh, yeah, I think you've just answered the question, but can't, I mean, and again, you look at the UK as an example, but, but other countries too could be up against this. Can governments ultimately find in the capital markets ways to finance fiscal expansion going forward? I mean, to what degree, maybe without the United States in this, are countries around the world going to be able to do that? Well, it depends. I think it depends on the government. It depends on its financial standing. Um, if, let me just comment on the, the UK situation because, you know, so much of the commentary there is focused on the former prime minister and particular political decisions. I, I think the really important thing about what happened in the UK was a very sudden turn in the market. You know, up until really that budget, markets seem to be rewarding fiscal expansion of almost any size and frankly almost any quality. Right. What I thought was interesting about the British government's budget was that actually as fiscal expansion goes some of the measures there were more sensible than a lot of what we've seen around the world. But the problem is the market was now seized with inflation and seized with the financial standing of the government. So you look around the world, look, I've been saying from the outset of the pandemic, we are going to have major sovereign debt crises as a consequence of the vast overuse of fiscal and monetary expansion during, um, during COVID, particularly fiscal expansion. Um, not every country is going to be affected the same. The markets will attack the weakest in the herd. They will look at levels of debt. They will look at levels of deficit. They will look at the, the trajectory of the deficit. And they will look at whether governments have a credible fiscal plan and a credible growth plan. And the problem in the United Kingdom was the numbers were bad. And the government signal, signaled that it was going to go even farther without a plan to really address that situation. So I think what's incumbent now on all governments, as you said, United States is a, is a bit of a unique, unique case. But in case of just about every government, but the federal government of the United States, every every government coming forward is going to have to have a fiscal story to tell. They don't have to have a balanced budget next year or even the next couple of years. But if they have a story that we are just going to spend our way out of this, markets are going to respond very badly, especially if their debt and deficit numbers are already high. Do they have to have an energy security story to go along with that? Well, I think that's part of the broader growth uh, growth strategy and story. But yeah, look, absolutely, uh, particularly in the short term in Europe, um, you know, you can't grow your economy if you can't get energy. And so um, in the short term, there are some countries that are going to have to answer, answer some hard questions on that. These are very, I mean, I, I am very concerned about the, uh, the impacts of energy prices and potential energy sources in part of, of Europe and part of the, the developed world. I, I think we could see you know, really serious political and social upheaval if um, 
if we don't get on a track of pretty sensible energy policy pretty quickly. Well, let's dig into that a little bit and, and ask perhaps, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but there are some that will say Canada has given a little bit of a pass because if we wanted to, it's in the ground and we could get at it. Now, right. policy at the moment isn't actually going in that direction, and, and it's hard to know exactly the direction of the U.S., but at the moment, the midterm elections seem to point to maybe going in a different direction, too. Um, is the fact that we've got it, we could use it, sort of the energy security story? I mean, how, how much does that set us apart, give us a pass, if you will? Well, first of all, I don't I don't think Canada, anybody thinks Canada has an energy security problem. You know, we're, we're the last country in the developed world that should have any problems with energy security. We have such an abundance of of energy given our needs, even without it, without developing it further. I think the, the problem with Canada is, is obviously that we have an enormous opportunity um, to actually benefit from the the challenges that are in the world, and instead, we're choosing not to benefit. Which, which, by the way, I, you know, I travel around the world uh, on this, and, and nobody understands what we're doing here. I mean, everybody in the world would love to invest in Canadian energy if they saw uh, policymakers committed to profitability, and they'd love to buy Canadian energy as 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 really the you know the most secure kind of alternative compared to other sources, but they're just mystified as to why we are passing on such an opportunity when the world is screaming for it, frankly. Do you see any movement on that front? Like, will there be any pipelines that might be reconsidered? Do you see anything on the infrastructure side? You'd, you'd, uh, you'd be best to ask the current incumbents in office uh, on that. I, I, I have my doubts. I think we probably require a change in government, but I'm going to try and refrain from much partisanship yep. on this. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the idea sort of of the world changing after the pandemic. Um, I think a lot of us are living a different a different world in certain ways. But what does deglobalization or or just less globalization perhaps look to you? Less travel, less. I mean, where do you see things yeah. probably coming to the trade point <laughs> there? Yeah, well, let me let me answer it in two ways. First of all, there was a lot of speculation at the outset that kind of human relations would be permanently altered by the pandemic. Um, I have been predicting that that's not the case, that as soon as the pandemic was over, people would want to return to mass events, theaters, sports events. People would want a vacation and travel. And I think for the most part, we're seeing that. I, there are some subsections of the population where people don't seem to be re-socializing, but Social life is coming back. Business models, um, you know, I think have have been permanently changed. Uh, you know, and, and look, I think in many ways for the better. Part of the part of the way we got through the pandemic was we discovered, you know, in the last 15 years what marvelous advancement has been made in video conferencing technology like this. I mean, you couldn't have done this 15 years ago with any with the kind of quality of this broadcast. And so, you know, I think there's just more business will be done in this way. Not all business. A lot of business does require person-to-person -person contact, especially establishing networks. But this will change. Now, the broad, broader picture question you asked, though, is about the, the you know, really what this has done to globalization. And, and I, I do think, um, even prior to the pandemic, um, 
I think what was happening was what I call the end of the era of naive globalism. And what I mean by that is that after the Cold War, in the years following the Cold War, an assumption began to, began to take hold, um, a, a kind of an implicit assumption. I, I'm not sure I ever heard anyone say it. But an implicit assumption took hold that the differences in political systems and the rivalries between them were a small or negligible or at least constantly declining business risk. What the pandemic has shown, not just with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but quite frankly, the way the Chinese handled the pandemic, fights over PPE, et cetera, what all of this has shown is that these uh, geopolitical tensions and forces really matter. And uh, they're gonna have to be priced into business risk. Uh, companies and governments have to create redundancies that they had not created in the past. Things like national security, health security, uh, communication security, these things are now have a heightened level of focus. All of these, it doesn't mean globalization is over, but the notion that boundaries were just increasingly irrelevant has been proven to be just wrong. And so you're seeing a partial deglobalization process. It depends on the country, it depends on the sector, but that is just the reality going forward. And, and look, I would argue that, in fact, a lot. if you actually look at, it was interesting when I was prime minister, if you looked at polls, um, the business community had this kind of naive assumption. The population at large was actually quite skeptical mm -hmm. of you know, the Chinas and the Russias and others in the world and thought there were really serious risks around these relationships. And the business community kind of poo-pooed it. And we're now seeing that the population was way ahead of business leaders and policymakers. And, and you know, we're now getting a, a clearer sense of what the risks are. We're entering a period, by the way, Pamela, like independent of whether those risks are, are now recognized or not, we are entering a period of, of acute geopolitical and macro, macroeconomic risk. And this is just the reality going forward. It's the reality going forward. And as you say, many things don't happen overnight and they were sort of beginning prior to the pandemic, but it's exposed. I mean, certainly just looking at different hegemonic structures, different allies. I mean, what would you point to as being the most significant new sort of forming alliances or lack thereof. I mean, I, I'm sort of thinking there's more of a vacuum. Yeah, I was gonna say the lack thereof, this is, I was saying this right from the outset of the pandemic. To me, Pamela, what was most interesting as, you know, as a guy who led the country through the global financial crisis, what was most interesting to me was how the globe as a whole responded to the crisis. In 2008, you know, it kind of began in September. I was in the middle of an election campaign. By November, George W. Bush had assembled in the White House the leaders of all the major countries. It was really the first meeting of the G20 leaders and all the major global financial institutions. And we spent a couple of days laying out a framework for global recovery. There was lots of work to do nationally, but there was a high level of coordination between governments, between central banks, and constant communication. At the outset of this pandemic, that never happened. We can discuss the reasons why or why not. But, you know, we had things like the Russian-Saudi oil price war and supply war, which was, frankly, something like that would have been unthinkable during the global financial crisis. The degree of cooperation and dialogue among leaders would have avoided that. 
We had things like Canada and the United States fighting over personal protective equipment. By the way, and what's interesting is it wasn't just between countries, even within countries. Radically different um, regimes for responding to the pandemic by province, by municipality. You know, one of the most interesting things I found, I was, I, I traveled, I never stopped traveling totally. I was in the United Arab Emirates um, during the early phases of the pandemic. Dubai was open, Abu Dhabi was closed, and there were border checks between two emirates in an absolute monarchy. So for whatever reason, the world did not respond with cooperation, which I, I by the way, I think is a, a warning sign for the future. But that to me is what really marked this period was the general lack of cooperation and coordination. For example, and the one I like to give most uh, acutely is, you know, we, we're now pretty well back to normal travel. But we had for two years varying travel, varying restrictions and rules around air travel between countries all over the world. Not only was there never an attempt to create a common standard of rules around travel and restrictions, no leader even suggested such a thing be done, which I found was just extraordinary. Well, was that because the transmission was actually airplanes, though? I mean, is that part of the reason? No, I, I look. I I think I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I, I you know, and I I would actually argue that a pandemic is actually more ripe for cooperation than than a global financial crisis. The global financial crisis, you know, every country actually had different underlying economic conditions. Pandemic affects everyone pretty much the same. You get sick or you don't get sick. So I actually think there was more room for that. I, I just think it's the reality of I can say of international politics right now. So the relationships um, have, aren't there. I mean, they're not they're not there in the way they were. Look, there are only three. What I tell people is this. If you've seen international organizations up close, what you realize is they are un, incapable of global leadership for the most part. Global leadership only occurs when the major countries provide leadership. And there are only three entities in the world that are capable of providing global leadership. There's the European Union, which unfortunately spends almost all its time coordinating internally because of the complexity of its systems. There's the People's Republic of China, which because of the sources of the pandemic, obviously nobody trusted. And then there was the United States of America. And for various reasons, the United States has been moving away from global leadership and particularly under President Trump. So I think those that's the reason why global leadership never emerged during the pandemic. So maybe it's too early there there are times where there are interregnums you know in history that that happens is there something that is beginning to show itself as a, as a unifying new economic framework of some sort i mean you know some will suggest it's it's clean energy that that's what will bring people together maybe it's just energy period um and you know and everything that comes under that banner are there are there broad strokes of where things might go well, uh, there are broad strokes, but I think they're quite the opposite. I think the broad strokes are, if I can be blunt, the really the emergence of a new Cold War um, with, you know, on one side, uh, China, Russia, Iran, in increasingly, by the way, in an axis. And on the other side, the developed economies of, of the West and Asia. And then, uh, by the way, and you have a, then you have a whole bunch of people, the Gulf where I just was and other parts of the world where 
they're just trying to figure out how to play, how to be kind of on both sides. Um, so I think that a, a kind of a partial new Cold War is the reality. Um, that should not prevent those of us in the democratic and advanced world, though, from pursuing greater cooperation. I wonder just on that discussion, because um, I lived in Dubai many years ago and, and knew the, the government well, and it's you know a, a real sort of benevolent dictatorship in a lot of ways. But just speaking to political systems, um, democracies at their best have, have more flexibility. They're less brittle, basically. Um, how do you, again, see sort of those two systems adjusting in the future, changing, hopefully for the better, but any changes? Look, it's an interesting question. And, and you know, for years, I listened to many people, many political business and other analysts talking about, uh, you know, the strength of authoritarian systems, particularly the Chinese system, marveling at how the Chinese system was able to uh, make a lot of good decisions very quickly compared to what we in the West have been able to do in the past generation. Um, and look, it's, it is a fact that authoritarian systems can make decisions more quickly, can mobilize things more quickly, and, and can often get things dead right in ways that democratic systems, the more complex democratic systems can't. I think what people misunderstood and are now starting to see, particularly in China, is that over time, uh, the problem with authoritarian systems is when, when they're wrong, they don't adapt and they don't adjust. And the reason they don't adapt and they don't adjust is when your claim to power is not, you know, you're not a, a, a say, a, a democratically elected leader or a, a monarch in a very traditional society. When your claim to power is basically that you are infallible, um, which is what the claim of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are. That is their claim. They're the smartest, best people in the country. They can't be wrong then it is very difficult to admit any major mistake. And so authoritarian systems often double down and triple down, which frankly is what I think we've been seeing in China on, on the pandemic. Uh, democratic systems, on the other hand, while we get things wrong constantly, show great ability to adapt and to be resilient over time. Now, look, there's, that doesn't guarantee that our system over time will will succeed. We, I think we do have to have in the democratic world better leadership and a lot of better decisions than we've had in the last 10, or 10 years or so. But, you know, I am more optimistic. One of the reasons I'm optimistic about the future, and I am fundamentally optimistic, is that we live in democratic market-based economies. These are the resilient societies and the resilient economies over time. That's been the history, and I think it will be the history again. But it's not it's not a it's not written in stone. Right. And it, it could take some some tough decisions. You know, I, I, I'm sure you know lots and lots of people um, in this. I know lots of wonderful people who would be excellent running for politics, running for elected office, and they won't go near it because it's you know, it's a rough life. You get you get it's a rough life. How do we make that better? Look, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I can tell you what I found when we were trying to recruit candidates or encouraging people to run. What I found is that what you can't replace is a person's desire to do it. Right. Um, you ultimately do public service because you really want to. There's something about it that turns you on, that makes you excited about the life 
and about making those kinds of decisions regardless of the downsides. Um, so, you know, I just found that you can't talk people into it. Um, they just have to have that burning desire. Now, are there things we could do in terms of, you know, income security or other things perhaps? Um, but um, look, um, the people who succeed at it, I hate to say this, I would have cursed myself hearing myself say this when I was young. The people who succeed at it are people who tend to commit to it fairly early in life and do it as a big chunk of their career. Because the truth is that politics is an industry and it is a profession and there's a lot to be learned. And you can be really smart, you know, running a university or an auto parts company or whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be a good political leader. You got a lot to learn. And so, as I say, people who do it young and who have modest income expectations will succeed. The problem, you know, people try and get into it later, don't have the experience and also are used to a much more lucrative lifestyle will have trouble adjusting to political life. Really interesting. Where do you think some of the, the innovation you, you've mentioned a couple of times, I mean, basically the digital experience we're having right now that the world has learned to work under um, this type of environment, thrive in this type of environment. Where does digitization have a role in, um, in government? Well, it, 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 has, it should have a significant role. Um, you know, look, I won't plug anybody here, but we actually as a company uh, you know, we work in a number of tech areas and we work with companies that provide a digital tech services to government because there is, there is the ability through modern technology at fairly low cost for governments to really reorder their information systems and serve the public much better. Um, but look, governments, governments have to want to do that and be really connected to that to that ecosystem. But look, another reason, look, fundamentally, Pamela, another reason that I'm very optimistic is I think independent of all the macroeconomic and geopolitical and other challenges we're facing, that there is just such a huge, not just digitization, there is just such a huge momentum on the side of technological development that will improve lives that I think that is it is roaring ahead one way or the other. And, um, you know, we're going to see, I, I keep telling people, we're going to see changes even in my remaining lifetime. We are going to see changes and improvements of human life that were literally science fiction a few years ago. People say to me, give me an example of this transformation. I already gave you half of it. Um, you know, how did we handle it? How did we get out of the pandemic? I say first, we learned to live through the pandemic, to be able to conduct business during the pandemic through the modern miracle of advanced video conferencing. We couldn't have managed our way through it 15 years ago, we did. And then of course, how did we solve the pandemic? It was the development of vaccines in absolutely record time, spectacular effective vaccines developed. Um, you know, if you compare the history of vaccine developed, just developed in extraordinarily uh, short time horizons. And these two things, allowed us to manage the pandemic and then solve the pandemic in a way that even 15 or 20 years ago would have been impossible. So look, that's just to me the tip of the iceberg of the kind of positive changes that are coming. And, and I say governments, if governments know who to talk to and who to ask, there are lots of ways for them to improve their, um, their interface with the public and deliver services better with modern technology. Um, just to pick up back on the innovation front again, let, let's go to the energy 
side of things. Um, sometimes I wonder if the energy sector hasn't done a good enough PR job on itself because it has actually incredible technological advances uh, over the course of the last couple of decades that sometimes it hasn't told that story very well. I, I imagine that has only increased. What, what do you see? Well, I think, look, I think that's true. Um, and I certainly, I felt that when I was prime minister, I was often frustrated by feeling, to be blunt, that the Canadian energy industry did not get out there aggressively to tell its story because it's actually a very good story. You look, you know, for example, an emissions reduction in the oil sands has been absolutely spectacular over the past generation or so. Um, but that all said, um, look, we shouldn't, I, I don't want to blame it all on the energy sector. I think the reality is that governments around the world are involved in what I call an irrational energy transition that is extremely dangerous. And what I mean by an irrational energy transition is not, you know, not being concerned about climate change and the need to reduce emissions, which is a serious long-term challenge. What I mean is um, not looking realistically at what the options are and developing policy around realistic options. Like I have witnessed the climate change debate now for 30 years. And Pamela, here is what has happened for 30 years. For 30 years, decision makers, governments around the world get together. They set an arbitrary target, unlinked to any particular means. They never specify the means by which a target will be achieved. So it's, it's usually a completely unrealistic target based on existing means. Then when the target, they fail to meet the target, and we failed every single time, they set an even more ambitious target that we will fail to meet by an even wider margin without specifying what um, means we will have to get there. And we have to spend a lot more time looking at what are the realistic options, and then I think we'll make more realistic decisions about what kinds of energy transition are viable and what aren't. You know, the way I see the world going right now is I see the huge activist community really pushing for uh, essentially renewables, um, in a, uh, you know, with, with great and as yet unrealized advances in battery technology, um, there's no guarantee that that route's going to be successful. And there are lots of other ways that we could be reducing emissions that are getting short shrift, in my opinion. So, look, like I just what? think, um, well, look, the, the most obvious, as I've said, is, is already is carbon tech, is there, there is actually tremendous opportunity to reduce emissions in fossil fuels themselves. But another one, another obvious one, if you want a no emissions, um, a no emissions uh, response to energy development, the most obvious is nuclear and fourth generation nuclear technology, which until recently environmentalists didn't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. So, you know, you have, I, when I talk about irrational energy transitions, you look around the world, particularly some European countries, phasing out fossil fuels, phasing out nuclear with absolutely no idea how any of this is going to be replaced. Um, yeah, you can, you can, we can reduce emissions by grounding our economy into the ground and people being unable to heat themselves, but that's not a solution. I feel like you're talking about maybe Central European policy of certain countries at the moment, but yes. Yeah, I, won't, um, I won't mention. That's right. Um, it's fascinating. The advances in nuclear technology obviously are huge and, and they require a much less cumbersome reactor system. So it's it's an interesting right. area. Do you do you see it gaining ground, though? I mean, it does sound like certain energy leaders are starting to go down that um, path. 
Yeah, my sense is that the worm is turning on this, that um, among, um, you know, what I would call kind of mainstream policymakers and, and sensible environmentalists, that there's a realization that we can't do the energy transition without nuclear being a part of the mix. And there really are very promising uh, fourth generation um, technologies, even, even in this country, uh, in Canada, uh, terrestrial energy, for instance. There are, there are really people developing things that could be transformative. Um, so look, as I say, there are, and, and, and by the way, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of um, there are lots of other uh, technological innovations. I, look, I think the biggest problem with some of the energy policy is it keeps seeking one big fix to it all. I, I, I joke about the giant battery that will, you know, retain all the renewable energy and fuel the world. I don't think that's how we're actually going to make an energy transition. I think energy transition is actually going to happen over time by a thousand different improvements at the margin that gradually improve energy productivity and reduce emissions. Isn't it just easier to have one standardized type of energy to be using and marketing and, you know, ultimately delivering um, to homes? Well, I guess theoretically it would be, but look, the reality is this, Pamela, with with even modest projections on future growth. The truth is, if you add all viable forms of energy up today, we do not have enough energy for the future. So, you know, we're, we're, we can't, we not only can't rely on a single source of energy, we're not really in a position these days to just decide that we're not gonna have entire, you know, entire energy sources. And, and this, by the way, is something that the West is gonna have to come to terms with. You know, we may well want in Western countries to dramatically reduce our emissions, but the reality is that in emerging con economies like China and India and elsewhere, they are going to continue to use the lowest cost energy at scale, period. And the only way we're going to do an energy transition is when lower emission sources are also lower cost at scale. And if they're not, the, we could make a transition, but the world will not. Okay, very interesting. There's so many questions, many of which you've answered actually over the course of um, the last little while. Some of them go to, I've heard you comment before um, regarding social media, it's good place and bad place perhaps in our in our minds. But this particular question from an investor is, is asking you to comment on the rise of populism, populism and the effects of social media, putting them together, which, you know, I mean, what do you think of that? Well, look, I, I don't mind me plugging here. I wrote a whole book on this. Um, uh, right here, right now, uh, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption, in which I attribute the growth of, it, it, populism's a broad term. I, what you've seen in almost all Western democracies is the growth of new political parties and new leaders with different styles. Right. And I, th I think it is in response to two things. One is um, the very uneven effects that globalization has had in most Western democracies. In a lot of countries, Canada until recently was an exception. In a lot of countries, very high growth in top incomes and very modest growth in middle incomes and even falling growth among lower income populations. United States being a perfect example. So you've seen increasing um, political turmoil around those outcomes, but then you have layered on top of that social media. And look, I don't think that social media uh, has made public opinion any worse than it ever was. 
I think what social media has done is make us face the complexity of public opinion. Before social media, opinion was essentially channeled and developed through established institutions and established channels of communication. But now the reality is that any group of people through social media can organize around an idea, a cause, a worldview very quickly. And that's what's happening. And so you're seeing political polarization and fragmentation. Look, by the way, this has happened in every, I would argue this has happened in every, um, in every phase of technological development in Western democracies. Every time you've had a new medium, when you went from stump speeches to radio, and then you went from radio to television, and now from television to social media, every time that has happened, the political world has changed, and it's taken political leaders and political operators a period of time to figure out how to best use the new technology to really lead coalitions and ultimately create a viable past the government. And I think that we're still in the very early phases of even the most innovative political leaders figuring out how it is that they will master public opinion, put together winning election campaigns, and then actually positively govern, govern in this kind of an environment. And we're a long way from solving that riddle. One, one thing that must be consistent from the stump speeches all the way through to every other kind of medium is a clear message um, and managing the message by actually answering questions, which I will say I feel you did. Actually, you were always very clear when you spoke to the media, you, you answered questions. Um, and I don't know if they were what people wanted to hear or not, but you actually answered questions. What can politicians, again, just around the world, do to, to sort of answer people's questions? Well, look, for what it's worth, my advice, I, I, I would, if I were, you know, back to being, instead of being 63, if I were back to being 33 and just about to enter parliament, um, you know, my advice would be to do things very differently than I did them, uh, Pamela. The reality is we're in a different environment. I think the great advantage that politicians have now is because of social media, particularly for conservative politicians, if I can be blunt, we are not dependent on getting our message out through traditional media, which is overwhelmingly dominated by people from a different political perspective. And so I think um, what, um, what all politicians will do, but especially third of ones, is figure out how to reach the public, how to figure out what those questions are and how to answer them directly to the voters en masse through modern, through modern means of communication. Don't rely on traditional media outlets to filter your message. It doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, look, um, I say I'll try and avoid, um, I'll try and avoid uh, uh, too much partisanship, but look, the leader of my party today, Mr. Baliev, you know, some of his videos, some of his videos have larger audiences than national newscasts. Um, you know, that's an example of how you can actually widen your audience through social media rather than, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, rather than using traditional means. Very interesting. So, I mean, it's, as you say, it's early innings. There's, there's lots of room for this to develop and, and perhaps it's an opportunity, as you suggest. Um, it's, it's a fascinating area. Some questions are rolling in on, on the role of digital currencies, central bank yeah. digital currencies, but also, you know, sort of the more private side of things, the, the Bitcoins, the ethers of the world. Is it an area that interests you? 
Well, it, it kind of by default, um, our business does very, very little in the area of cryptocurrency. There's so many things I could say about this. Um, what I would say in short is, first of all, it is a very complex industry. And I actually think the term cryptocurrency is misleading because other than Bitcoin and a couple of others, most of these things are not really currencies and not being used as currencies very often. They're actually forms of digital security. And I would say that investors and other people are going to buy them should really be examining them from you know a, a security and investment perspective rather than trying to see them as some kind of alternative currency. Um, but look, I think that um, I think they're going to play a, a role in the future. Um, Bitcoin, particularly, I mean, Bitcoin is a significant currency where you know where in parts of the world where governments and government currency are fundamentally unreliable. Um, it, it is it is a growing phenomenon in terms of digital currencies by government um, you know central banks will do their digital currencies I I'm not sure that the people who want digital currencies are interested in central bank digital currencies I think they're looking for something independent of a of a traditional monetary authority oh interesting okay I was gonna say if if central bank digital currencies sort of I mean they're all being studied it seems to be a, a, a light switch flick away if they wanted to on some level and the study has been done but would that not just sort of allow central banks to be bigger players in markets and, and on some level they're they're trying to get out of that a bit right now aren't they yeah I, as i say i'm not but i'm not sure what market demand that responds to the 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 search for cryptocurrencies or crypto alternative to um, to a central bank currency is not because the central bank's currency isn't digital um, it's because it is controlled by a government authority and particularly Bitcoin, people are looking for an autonomous, uh, an autonomous vehicle. Maybe I just mention one other thing I think is important about cryptocurrency to the extent, and look, I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but I've read way too much on this stuff. Um, the one thing I would say that I think the, where potential of cryptocurrency is really underestimated is its ability to disaggregate banking and financial services across borders. Um, you know, Bitcoin transactions can be done. You can have Bitcoin transactions in the millions of dollars with a fee that is literally pennies and, you know, try and do that through traditional banking services. So I think that's where, that's where the impact, uh, the impact on banking and financial services, that's where I think the impact, the long-term impact of cryptocurrency is really not fully understood. Like the level of trade, essentially. Exactly. Fascinating. Um, lots of questions. Really want to get your, your thoughts, if you don't mind, just going back to the idea, perhaps, of a Cold War, uh, how far down the road we are. Uh, your thoughts on what Vladimir Putin is doing at this stage in this war? And, and really, I don't know, I'd like to end on something positive, but I would like to ask you, first of all, sort of what you think his, his um, I mean, do you think he's yeah. unhinged? What is the danger there? Yeah, hard to ask a positive question about Vladimir Putin. I know. Putin. We'll move on after. Yeah. Your 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 listeners, your viewers may recall that, you know, Vladimir Putin and I did not have the best of relationships and I had been kind of warning the world for some time that he was capable of this sort of thing. Um I look, uh, he clearly miss he clearly um, misjudged made an enormous misjudgment. He 
vastly overestimated the capacity of his armed forces. He vastly underestimated the capacity of the Ukrainian armed forces. And I also think he was deceived, if I can be blunt. I think that all the signals that were being sent by the United States and other Western powers before the invasion was that we really weren't going to help Ukraine. And now, of course, we turned around and have helped them immensely. And so he now finds himself in a very different kind of conflict than he thought he was in. Um, so, look, my prognosis of this is not good. Um, I think the best we can hope for is that as the Ukrainian forces begin to, as they recapture territory and they begin to hit areas of the country that are essentially Russian speakers, that their advance slows and that the conflict becomes regionalized kind of along that line. And I think that's the best we can hope for, that a low-grade conflict continues. Because I think for different reasons, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians can agree to stop fighting in the near term. Um, it's, it's, the Ukrainians cannot um, admit to um, giving up in any way, shape, or form because they know from their history, if they ever appear to surrender even partially, they will face slaughter. That is the history. That's why they fight so ferociously. And in case of Putin, he can't admit defeat because the moment he admits defeat, he is no longer the strongest guy in Russia and he's a dead man walking. So I, look, I just think that um, that's the best we can hope for is it becomes a regionalized low-grade conflict, but with a constant risk of escalation. I mean, that's the reality of this. I think the lesson, Pamela, in all of this is, is quite different than most Western leaders seem to be taking. I see a lot of Western leaders, beginning with the President of the United States, patting themselves on the back, saying, look at how we're helping Ukraine, and look at how they're, how they're so valiantly fighting. Um, that's not how you deal with this sort of thing. The way you deal with this sort of thing, you, you understand that this is a dangerous world full of bad actors, of which Vladimir Putin is one, and frankly, the Chinese and Iranians and a number of others are others. And you make sure that you deter these people so they don't do this kind of adventurism in the first place. You do not want to, it's great to fight a war and have some success. Ukrainians are having some success. But what you've got to do as an intelligent leader, especially in the big global powers, you've got to create an environment where war doesn't start in the first place. It's not in somebody's interest to try this kind of thing. So we, we completely failed to deter Vladimir Putin. My opinion, by the way, no excuse for it. I understand that before 2014, a lot of people didn't believe that I had the right reading on Putin. But I don't know how after 2014, when they actually began the invasion of Ukraine, you could not understand that Putin was capable of this. But anyway, after 2014, we failed to deter him. And this is what happened. Let us not fail to deter the Chinese on Taiwan or the Iranians on Israel or the, or the Gulf. It's really important that we do that or we're going to have more of these kinds of things. Fascinating. Um, very good to get your thoughts on it. When you look, uh, again, sort of the, the pros, the cons of, of governments around the world, I mean, I've lived in a dictatorship. I mean, you're always wondering if property is actually owned by the person who bought it or if it's owned by the government. You wonder just that alone, where that puts investors in Canada at ease. We have the rule of law. We know that property is protected, assets are protected. We, um, you know, that must, there could be a real premium on that for us in the future, no? 
Oh, absolutely. Look, this I go back. This is one of the underappreciated strengths of um, of of democracy of democratic societies. For all the problems that a lot of democratic societies are, are having, and a lot have now, very polarized and fragmented political systems with the rise of populists and nationalists and eco extremists and everybody else. The reality is that in virtually all of our countries, there still is rule of law and there are property rights. And, you know, you take China, even at China's absolute best, if you go back 10, 15 years, uh, your property was always in significant jeopardy. Whether you would ever be able to extract an investment from the People's Republic of China has always been a matter of doubt. And so these things should never be taken for granted or underestimated. Uh, look, as I say, I'll go back to what the, the strength of our country is and the potential for our country. We are extremely unique in that we are, I think, really the only major developed economy in the world that has economic strengths all the way from the most basic industries, food, energy, resources, water, all the way to the highest tech industries. We have that complete spectrum. And right now we're in a situation in the world where you know, I think we're going to be entering a significant recession. And I think a lot of markets are gonna be challenged, but we're going to see, we're going to continue to see growth in, in the emerging world. And that growth is going to demand resources from stable places and certainly gonna demand energy. And this opportunity is just staring Canada in the face. Canada is going to enter a recession like the rest of the developed world. But right now, Pamela, there's no excuse for that. Like our country should be the one country that's absolutely recession proof right now, given the various forces in the world. We're not geopolitically threatened. Um, I say we have the resources the world needs and we have all of the advantages of an advanced economy. And so if any country should be uh, thriving, it should be us. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. I thank you on behalf of everyone joining us here today. We wish you well. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Stephen Harper joining us, former Prime Minister of Canada here on Fidelity Connects today. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.